This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Over the past year, I have been reading J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings to my two younger boys who are now aged seven and nine. We found ourselves in the third volume called The Return of the King, and we had just concluded the chapter entitled Houses of Healing. This chapter comes after the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, from which came great suffering and destruction, but also great bravery and friendship. In any event, it's in the houses of healing that the wounded are being tended to, though some of them are so deeply wounded that their recovery is uncertain or even doubtful. But then, Aragorn is summoned to the Houses of Healing and is eventually revealed as the true king because he has the power to heal those who are wounded in body and in spirit. Wounds so deep that the normal courses of treatment could not heal them. And it was then, at the conclusion of that chapter, that my nine-year-old son, Josiah, suddenly said, that's like Jesus, who showed his kingship by healing people. I want to talk about this kind of healing today on our show. Not explicitly Jesus' healing touch, but rather the profound meditation that Tolkien invites us into through his Lord of the Rings, where the health and well-being of the wounded is never only physical, never just bodily, but indeed psychological and especially spiritual. Tolkien's meditation emerges, of course, from his Catholic imagination And so, though not explicitly about Jesus' healing, it is nevertheless about Jesus' healing in and through others. To talk about these kinds of sicknesses and this kind of healing, I'm so happy to welcome back to our show Dr. Christian Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, where she is also the Director of the Medical School's Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life in collaboration with Spoke Street Media Network. Dr. Christian Collier, welcome back to Church Life Today. Thanks for having me on the show again, Lenny. I appreciate it. Well, Christian, I guess I assigned you some homework, which was to go back and read these chapters from Tolkien, where he really brings to the fore this vision of his characters as bodily and spiritual Mm -hmm. beings at once. I think it's especially through their woundedness, their suffering, and their needs for healing that he makes this most apparent to us, kind of their their unified bodily and souled reality. Now that you've done your homework, you went back and read this stuff, what caught your attention? What were you thinking about as you meditated on Tolkien's images? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate this opportunity to think about this chapter in particular as it relates to the pandemic and more broadly to the practice of medicine. So, yeah, the chapter gets at several themes that resonate with me as a physician, especially during this time. The use of touch, the limits of modern day medicine, the interaction between the mind and the body and how we think about whole person care and really what it means to think about the deep wounds that lie outside of the really the purely biological domain. because. We know, right, of course, with the physical wounds of those in need of healing, there are also deeper wounds of sorrow that only hope and human connection can heal. And we've seen many of these wounds come upon us as a result of the pandemic and the isolation that we've had to suffer. And so many have suffered as a result sometimes of the policies around COVID-19. 
and really this this idea that we all are in need of healing um, and a need of healing as whole persons. And there are really some cool biblical themes as well, and I can't wait to discuss them with a real life theologian. I'll try and find one for you. I have several I will bring up that I will need help with for sure. <laughs> so interesting. I just, of course, like Julie Andrews, let's just sort of start at the beginning, I guess. So at the beginning of the chapter, the stage is set right. So at the beginning of the chapter, we read about the sort of overall milieu in which the houses of the healing is set. So the chapter opens with a view. We are told of, quote, the wreck and the slaughter that lay all about. So unlike previous chapters, right, where battle and war are sometimes romanticized, there really is no sugarcoating of the results of war here. And this sort of, again, made me think about this pandemic and what we're facing right now, because we really are, you know, in my opinion, in a war of sorts, really, against a novel pathogen that's waged really a massive assault against humanity and everything that's dear to us, our connections, our our social gatherings, our ability to worship together. I mean, when I just look today, right, over 400,000 dead U.S. Americans alone and other wreckage, so to speak, right, with job loss and isolation, devastating effects from interruption of schooling for millions of, of children. So we're left thinking, right, can anything good come out of this wreckage? Because there's so much despair. But what's beautiful, I think, is this opening that Tolkien gives us sets up a beautiful contrast to the healing that we're going to see in the later in the later chapters. Hmm. So I think the first thing that I think we could talk about is is one of touch. Yeah. So we see that the first healer that's brought about in the chapter is Gandalf. He is spoken of in this chapter as having some limitations, and in that, then points us to this greater healing that we're going to see with Aragorn. So Gandalf was in the Houses of the Healing, and we're told, interestingly by Tolkien, that Gandalf goes from one patient to the other, quote, full of care. And so I I wondered, you know, what does full of care mean? What does Tolkien mean when he writes full of care? And what does Tolkien use as an example of what full of care looks like? And his examples that he gives really involves touch. So we're told that Gandalf caresses Mary's brow, so Mary is sick in the chapter, and lifts him carefully. And later, we're told that Aragorn actually takes Faramir's hand in his and lays the other hand upon the sick man's brow. So according to Tolkien, it looks like one part, and it really an essential part of being full of care, is using therapeutic touch. And it made me just reflect upon touch in modern-day medicine and the marginalization of touch and how so many patients in particular are isolated from touch of their loved ones because they're a restrictive visitor policy. And really how touch in particular, I think, has a special meaning, especially for Tolkien, from what I can tell. But then just as a small aside, it made me think about one thing that I think for people who are interested in medical history that I thought I would bring up, and I'm sure you've heard of it. So this theme of therapeutic touch by a king points to something called the royal touch, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So it was this idea in, in late medieval and early modern England and France that sometimes that touch by a king or sometimes just actually the coin that the king would touch could cure you from disease. So there was a disease called scrofula, which really we don't hear about much anymore. Scrofula actually is tuberculous lymphadenitis. And in particular, it was called the king's evil in Europe because the royal touch was believed to actually cure this disease until about the 18th century. So Charles II actually of England supposedly touched tens of thousands of scrofulous Englishmen and Englishwomen and sort of cured them. But of course, the interesting part of this is that scrofula really rarely results in death and often goes into remission on its own. But you had still the impression, right, that the monarch you. Yeah. And actually, too, for your for the literature boss out there, the king's touch and the royal touch is also seen in Macbeth, mm. where King Edward uses the royal touch also. Yeah, that's right. 
So just thinking about touch and medicine, one thing that came to mind as, as I thought about this is we know that in the extreme example, if you deprive people of touch, they don't do well. And if we think about even the horrific experiments done on babies by the Nazis in World War II when they were deprived of touch and voice or looking at orphanages over the past hundreds of years where, you know, the infant mortality was 30 to 40 percent. It was because those babies actually weren't being touched. And even in this day in you right, 2021, where we have all this amazing technology and therapeutics, some people, I think, maybe think that touch is really not really needed. When we have things like remdesivir or biologics, what does touch have to add to the equation? And I keep thinking the other day, I had a visiting professor and we were talking about this. Still to this day, in you know, 2021, one of the most powerful therapeutic modalities we have for premature babies in the NICU is touch. Just hold them. Yep. I mean, to your point there... I mean, quite literally, lack of touch is deadly for a newborn child, right? Like many of these experiences have shown this, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, as you're talking about Gandalf or giving us, giving our attention to Gandalf, who, as you say, Tolkien describes as full of care, and this care comes through Mm -hmm. his touch, the manner of his care. You were also kind of pointing out our present situation relative Mm -hmm. to the pandemic, which one of the major restrictions is to not touch or to not be in close contact with. I mean, in some ways, it's a requirement of curbing the spread of Mm -hmm. the virus. But as you were already alluding to, this sort of increases the maladies, right? Like there's the danger, the actual physical danger of the virus, but then there's these other dangers and sicknesses that come from that lack of touch. So this is, I mean, this is just a, I'm just kind of echoing this back. It's kind of a stunning point to think about that in the the wreckage and the slaughter that lay all about that you you so helpfully mm-hmm. point out that Tolkien describes at the beginning, it's really the healing from that begins with touch. And I'm just, mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm just trying to kind of wrestle with that at the moment to think about yeah. our own sicknesses, socially, personally, all these other mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there was just a study actually that came out in The Lancet. It's called the COVID-D study, and it was done by a, a group of investigators. One of the investigators of the study was Dr. Wes Ely, who is a palm care physician at Vanderbilt. I just had come speak as a visiting professor for my religion program mm-hmm. last week. And he actually spoke about this study, looked at hospitalized adults with COVID who were seriously ill. And one of the biggest predictors actually for an adult patient developing in hospital delirium was the absence of a, of a family member at their bedside. Oh, so wow. adults who had family members at their bedside were less likely to develop delirium. So delirium, for those of you who don't know, is like acute confusion or mental status change that happens in a person if they're in the hospital. It can happen to kids too, but I'm an adult doctor, so I know more about adult medicine. So for adults who have a family member at the bedside, they're less likely to get delirium, which is really a big deal, actually. So delirium has been associated with increased in hospital mortality, so it can lead to death. And so, you know, how is this mediated with the family member at the bedside? Probably by touch, right? Probably by voice. These sort of other intangibles that we really probably can't measure, just a sense of someone being there. I always say to my students, like one of the best predictors for good prognosis actually is a loved one at the bedside of a patient. Mm. So there, there is something really powerful there. And it's really awesome, I think, to see this really cool literature and scholarship around these fundamental truths, in particular, as it relates to the pandemic and touch and and presence, really. It's kind of amazing. Our own bodily presence is itself Mm -hmm. a sort of healing agent. Not sort of. It is a healing agent. Let's take away the qualifier there. Yeah, it is. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Dr. Kristen Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, where she is also Director of the University of Michigan Medical School's Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. 
We're talking about, well, sickness, sorrow, healing, and especially in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So going back to this chapter, Kristen, The Houses of Healing, which is in the third volume of The Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings, I suppose like one of the places where we see this deeper kind of sickness, it's not simply bodily, but it's in the particular main characters that are the patients in the houses of healing to whom yes. Gandalf first, but then later Aragorn comes. And mm-hmm. I thought maybe we talk about Faramir, who's right. now he's the, the steward in waiting of Gondor, but he's been wounded not only in battle, he's also been wounded up to this point by his father's disdain for him, especially mm-hmm. in comparison to his brother Boromir. And when Aragorn the king looks over Faramir in the Houses of Healing, Aragorn says this. He says, he is nearly spent, but this comes not from the wound. See, Mm -hmm. that is healing. Then when Aragorn is asked to diagnose Faramir about what causes this deeper malady, Aragorn says this. He says, weariness, grief of his father's mood, a wound, and overall the black breath. By the way, that's on page 846. So this shadow of evil has pierced him. His father's lack of love has pierced him. His own grief is weighing him down. And this, all of this deeper sickness also happens to be playing out in his body. It's not just yeah. the bodily wound, but it's being expressed or weighed down in his body. What did you make of all this? No, I just think it's fascinating. You know, it, the, so I, I really liked the section too. So there's obviously several people in the chapter that are ill, but with Eowyn, so her story in particular and Faramir's, I think reminds us that we're just not purely biomedical specimens. Like we're really connected in our mind and our body in ways that are really profound. So with Eowyn, interestingly, Aragorn says in the chapter, quote, I have maybe the power to heal her body. Mm-hmm. But to what she will awake, hope or forgetfulness or despair, I do not know. And if to despair, then she will die unless other healing comes, which I cannot bring. Mm. And so it's described that she is, which is really interesting, that she has some kind of strange injury. It says that her the arm that has been broken has been tended with due skill and it will mend in time, but the chief evil comes through the sword arm in that there seems no life, although it is unbroken. So the fractured arm is healing. It's been tended, it's mended, it's healing like you would expect. But the chief evil is in this sword arm in which there is no life, although that arm's bones are unfractured. This really beautiful picture of how, and I'm sure you know, some people believe in this chapter that this black shadow of which afflicts Mary and Eowyn, Faramir, et cetera, is some kind of extreme, obviously, mental anguish, like you talked about. Maybe it's a form of PTSD that comes out of the battles that they've seen. And this results in sickness. And her, obviously, Eowyn's constitution, for those of you that know the story, is already severely weakened by her, this loneliness and despair that she has suffered. So, but it's interesting because, right, her physical malady is being dealt with, but there's something else altogether that Aragorn is faced with healing. And if her physical wounds may be healed, but she is still, if she wakes up to despair, then she will die. Hmm. And it reminds me, for those of you that are sci-fi fans, it reminds me of the movie The Matrix with Keanu Reeves. And uh-huh. in the in the movie, Keanu actually is like doing this simulation in his brain where he's learning to fight in jiu-jitsu and such. And so Keanu Reeves asks Morpheus, you know, if you're killed in The Matrix, you die? You know, do you die here, <laughs> right. right? And Morpheus answers, the body cannot live without the mind. So mm-hmm. There's this really powerful link between the body and the mind that we're only just beginning to understand. 
And in, in medicine, I think one field of, of science that speaks to this in particular is a field that many of the readers may have heard about that's fascinating called psychoneuroimmunology. So the fact of like, how can our psychological state or our stress, right, cause us to have actually interference with our immune system, our biological selves. And one particular study that sort of speaks to this is they, they looked at women and their ability to heal. So especially thinking of the houses of the healing, what does healing look like when we are under duress psychologically? So what they did is they took these women who otherwise would have sort of same predictors for healing, you know, same age, non-smokers, et cetera. And they inflicted a physical wound on their back. So they did like a punch biopsy on their backs. And then they tracked the healing of these wounds. And actually controlling for all other factors, the women that healed more slowly had actually increased reported levels of marital discord. Hmm. So their stress in their marriage actually and in their life affected their body's ability to heal these wounds. I just think it's really profound and beautiful to think of that. And one other person in science for those listeners interested in this is the work done by Laura Kubzanski. She's an associate professor at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. And she she looked at cohort studies for years of adults actually and follows them over time. And actually people's sense of hopefulness or enthusiasm has been linked to actually having less risk of cardiovascular disease, even mm. after you account for other things like smoking. And for us physicians and those of us in healthcare, this has been brought to attention. Actually, last year, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine put out a report called Social Isolation, Loneliness, and Older Adults, Opportunities for the Healthcare System, which, again, talked about this massive amount of adults in this country who endorse ongoing loneliness and how that loneliness was significantly associated with increased risk of dementia, increased risk of premature death from all causes, and even if you control for other things like, you know, smoking, obesity, and physical activity. So again, this beautiful interplay that I think Tolkien speaks about, even really before all this science has come to light, he brings this to our attention in a way that's really, um, really advanced, you know, for the time and really profound. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you brought our attention to Eowyn here, and I want to kind of use her as a, well, not mm-hmm. use her, but I want to I stay with her as a way to think about mm-hmm. what, you, what you're drawing our attention mm-hmm. to here. This connection between the body and the mind, this total suffering, but also mm-hmm. the project or the hope of total healing, which is the only thing that in the end will save yeah. Eowyn. Right. Faramir right. seems to have a similar kind of set of maladies, but they're not as severe as Eowyn's. And in fact, you know, if we were to go to the final healing of Eowyn, it doesn't happen in this chapter. It happens mm-hmm. a couple chapters later in the chapter entitled The Steward and the King. Mm. So I'm looking, I think we have the same page numbers, Kristen, on page 941. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try here not to read like three pages in a row. No, no, but no. <laughs> it's like 941 and it concludes on 943. Okay. But, you know, Eowyn is basically restored to some form of physical health, right? Like she's in the houses of healing. She can walk about in the courts. Faramir is sort of smitten with her. But Faramir, when he encounters her, he's also kind of drawn by her abiding sadness. It's a form of pity, Mm -hmm. but not a condescending pity. It's a sort of sympathy. And he'll say to her in the bottom of 941, he says, Eowyn, Eowyn, white lady of Rohan, in this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. And he stooped and kissed her brow. And my seven-year-old hated that part. But then it (laughs) continues and it says, and so they stood on the walls of the city of Gondor And a great wind rose and blew, and their hair, raven and golden, streamed out mingling in the air, and the shadow departed, and the sun was unveiled, and light leaped forth, and the waters of Anduin shone like silver. And in all the houses of the city, men sang for the joy that welled up in their hearts from what source they could not tell. So here, what they do not know then is that the power of darkness has actually been banished, that the ring has been destroyed. 
or they're just at the beginning of the echoes of that clarion call. Mm-hmm. And yet this opening, this light, this dispersal of darkness comes from the power they do not know, but they're out there to see it. And it's Faramir's words to Eowyn that seem to kind of hasten her to this moment, put her on the mm-hmm. precipice. She's not yet healed. That comes just about a page and a half later where she finally comes out of this darkness. But that description of this joy that wells up from a source they could not tell. Mm-hmm. I imagine... I'm just thinking here, like for medical professionals, that may be a hard thing to reckon with. It might it be is. a hard thing to reckon with because you can't control it, right? But it's mm-hmm. it's also bringing people to the point of waiting for it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me too, just this conversation this in this particular chapter of patients that we see that, you know, are are the walking wounded that look by all accounts that they're better. You know, I, I think of a patient, um, I'll change the details for privacy a bit, sure. but a patient I saw recently who had a malignancy, had, let's say, breast cancer, and she had her mastectomy and she had her XRT radiation and some chemotherapy and such. And by all sort of biomedical accounts and her scans and everything, she was cured. But she walked around with this feeling, we talked about it, you know, she, she's like, I I know I'm cured, but I just, I'm not healed. Hmm. And she had so much psychological sequela around the treatment that she received and the fear of her cancer coming back and some guilt around this mutation that she had. They discovered that she found out that she's passed down to her daughters and how in, in medicine oftentimes, and just in, even in not medicine, people that we know of how these wounds go unnoticed because they're sort of hidden in plain sight. And I agree, just thinking about your comment about this true source of healing and the hope that we have for the great physician to heal us in the way that ultimately matters, especially for faith-based physicians about how hopeful that is for me to have when I feel like I'm at my limits as a physician. What can I hope for? Gives me immense sense of peace. Mm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Dr. Kristen Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, where she is also Director of the Medical School's Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. We've been talking about sickness, sorrow, healing in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, specifically the chapter in the third volume entitled Houses of Healing. So coming to wait for that hope to dawn and the true healing to set in, it also, I mean, Tolkien is not kind of kind of whipped up in fantasy here. He's not saying you just sit mm-hmm. and wait and do nothing. I mm-hmm. mean, it has come mm-hmm. after a tremendous amount, as you said, of touch, of skill, of attention, of contact to bring somebody like Eowyn, who's the most deeply wounded, yeah. to the point of potentially being healed, of basically waiting, if we want to say this outside of the novel, mm-hmm. waiting for the divine touch. Mm-hmm. And I mean, now I'm kind of thinking about this a little bit theologically, but it is in some ways the response or the gift of grace coming upon Mm -hmm. the work of nature, that this work, this medical work, this work of healing, this work of human skill and attention and accompaniment and presence and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. is in some ways a preparation, but it is not simply that. It's also its own form of healing, obviously. But I love what you just said, you know, referring to your your patient who said, I know I'm cured, but I'm not healed. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder here, Kristen, like, about this image of healing that we ought to have, like how important mm. do you think it is to have a full final vision of healing to kind of woo the imagination? 
it's inc- it's incredibly important. And I, as we've talked about previously, I think on this show, uh, one I, of which I did not have for for most of my adult life, um, <laughs> which uh, I, I lament greatly. But by the grace of God, I, I have that now. I mean, I, I think in particular in this chapter, I think one one um, interesting thing that makes me think of the limits of medicine and how we have to look forward. It's interesting when we're first actually told about Gandalf and his healing. It says that Gandalf is, quote, skilled in the healing of wound and hurt, save old age only. For that, they had found no cure. <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, this is a really interesting parallel, right, between between Gandalf's abilities and, and modern medicine. Like, so we're skilled, like Gandalf, we... we we have some skill, obviously, by the grace of God, but we do not have the power to conquer death or old age. And in that passage, it's really beautiful. It says that some people look like they're getting healed because this light comes in the window and lands on the faces of the sick, and it looks like they're healing, but it's just a trick of light. So Tolkien writes, quote, and the light through the windows fell on the gray faces of the sick. Then it seemed to those who stood by that in the glow, the faces flushed as with health returning, but it was only a mockery of hope. Hmm. Again, I'm probably overreading this, but I almost wonder if this is Tolkien's criticism of modern day medicine in a way, <laughs> like to be honest. It looks like we're making people better, but are we really? And then of course, Gandalf says in the passage for it's only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in the house. Hmm. And then it contrasts that with Aragorn's healings, which are really individualized and specific. So like when Faramir, for example, you mentioned him, when he opens his eyes, he already knows who Aragorn is and is ready to serve his new king. And it's really interesting because Faramir says, quote, my Lord, you called me, I come. And it reminds me of the scriptures when we're told that the sheep recognize my voice. Mm. And then Aragorn says, walk no more in the shadows, but awake. And of course, reminds me of Jesus saying, go and sin no more. But in that passage, which is obviously very complicated and everyone's being healed according to their needs, Aragorn, interestingly, and this is where I need your theological help here, Aragorn okay. uses the, er- the herb, right? So there's this herb that he asks to use, and it's, mm. it's in short supply, and he asks for it, and he goes, you know, is there enough? And it's actually, it's in short supply. It reminds me actually of the of the rationing that's happened. There's a lot of things that have been in short supply in this pandemic. Mm-hmm. But so if, for people who aren't familiar with the chapter, he lights this herb. It's sort of an incense of type uh, sort and people sort of inhale it. And then I said, does Aragorn really need the herb? And if he just, it was just the herb and we didn't need people, he could just have let the herb smoke away and just walk away and people would have inhaled any better. So that's not really true, right? But then I think, Okay, well, maybe like we do need people. We, of course, we need people. But then, is the how essential is the herb? He, if the healing is within him, the herb is just what is that? And then maybe think about here's the, the- theological insight that I need help with. Maybe think about the passage with Jesus and the blind man, uh-huh. and how Jesus uses the the earth and the spittle and makes the paste and puts it on the man's eyes. So Jesus obviously didn't need that to heal him. And it's just a a visible right sign or manifestation where Christ is vividly demonstrating his tangible mission as the incarnate word of God. But just made me think about this herb and sort of that the material means by which, you know, Christ would use, right, to sort of show his glory in a way. But I know we're sort of off track a bit, but that that passage particular reminded me of, of, of that passage with Jesus and the blind man. Oh, that's really... That's really provocative here. So, you know, I'm thinking of this in terms of, so I'll think of it at first in terms of like what's going on in Lord of the Rings. And Mm -hmm. part of it, I I think I have to think about Mordor 
Mm-hmm. in terms of the land of darkness, which I've actually said this to my students. I'm teaching a course right now. I've said it to my students mm-hmm. probably 15 times in the last few weeks. Like Mordor, just like the Upside Down in the show Stranger Things, is not just kind of like neutral evil at bay. It's not just staying there. It's actively mm-hmm. growing outwards. And especially as we see when Frodo and Samwise make their way into Mordor, it it is toxic to them. It's actually breaking them down and it kills everything within it. It actually turns what would otherwise be there into a conduit of death. And I think, you know, from what we know of Middle Earth, gosh, I'm sounding like a person I never thought I'd become, (laughs) right? (laughs) When we're talking about Middle Earth, I mean, this is a place that has been endowed with, invested with this deeper, he doesn't speak of magic fully, but this deeper Mm -hmm. magic, the touch of the elves, like the history of these these ages upon ages of the work of men. It's a place of kind of deep mysteries, mysteries upon mysteries. And the earth itself, the world itself is charged up with this vitality. I came very close Mm -hmm. to quoting Hopkins there, but it's charged up with this vitality. And so I wondered, as with Jesus taking the mud and his spittle Mm -hmm. and his touch and putting it on the man's eyes, like this creation that the Lord has made was Mm. made good and was made to be a conduit of life. And perhaps as that man is healed, so too is that mud, that earth being healed, being restored to Mm. its life-giving properties. And I I don't know if Tolkien's thinking about that here Mm -hmm. with this herb. I also think like, you know, who would gather that herb? Like in some ways, the the kingdom itself and the healers themselves would then have a part in healing mm. this man. And I don't think that's insignificant because I think that's a broader theme in Lord of the Rings yeah. too, that yeah. especially with the hobbits, like nobody just kind of arrives, obviously, at the the vanquishing of evil and the restoration of Middle Earth. Like they've all suffered for it. They've all paid the cost. They've all through their own blood, sweat and tears been part of the redemption of Middle Earth. And I think the fact that they did it makes a difference. It changes them. And that might be the image of good that Mm. Tolkien wants to give us. Like, it's the stuff of this place, the stuff of the earth, the stuff of these people. That is all the subject of redemption. Maybe I've gone on a little bit too much there about just these herbs, but that's the kind of stuff I think about here. Like, things matter in Middle Earth, just as things matter here in our Earth. I think that's beautiful, this idea of cooperation. Like we, um, in God's beautiful design, have been called to cooperate with the gifts that we've been given to mm-hmm. help in the, the, the comforting and the healing uh, in a limited way of our brothers and sisters. And even in the chapter, Tolkien talks about uh, more overt cooperation where like when at the beginning of the chapter, when Mary is sick, mm-hmm. he's sort of wandering into this fugue state during this dark, dark tunnel. And it's Pippin actually, who I think encounters him, right. And sort of then says, I'm going to take you to the houses of the healing. And so often, especially when we think about being aware of our family and our friends and our, our neighbors, mental health and being aware of sometimes being, you know, concerned, rightly concerned. It's oftentimes other people who bring us to help or get us help. It also reminds me there in that in that passage where where Pippin takes Mary of in the scriptures of the paralytic who can't get to Jesus on his own, but is uh, carried there and sort of lowered through the roof. His friends um, bring yeah, him. And Jesus yeah, says, seeing yes. it's a seeing their faith, actually, yes. is what it says. Seeing their faith, mm. he healed him. Mm. Yeah. It's beautiful. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Dr. Christian Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, where she's also Director of the Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion, 
We're talking about Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the images of sickness and healing that come to us there. You know, just a, a little while ago, I was kind of bringing up this this notion of these final images of health and mm-hmm. perhaps the importance yeah. of that, especially yeah. for medical professionals. But not only, yeah. I think this works in the popular imagination too. What mm-hmm. do we consider to be true mm-hmm. health? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, as a theologian, I think about this mm-hmm. because I've told my students this over and over again, like even in the word salvation, etymologically, mm-hmm. right in the middle of that word in the Latin salus, yeah. which means right. health, salvation yeah. is really the hope for full and abiding health of being restored and strengthened and indeed perfected. And so to think about this final mm-hmm. vision of health, a sort of eschatological vision, mm-hmm. I found myself coming back to Frodo, actually. And mm. this is outside of the assigned reading for today, Kristen. So <laughs> anyways, oh, no. I came back to Frodo. And at one point, you know, Tolkien makes the clear statement that to Frodo, the ring is a burden to his body and a torment to his mind, this great mm-hmm. burden that he carries. But then and this is in the chapter Many Partings, which comes, there's so many partings in Lord of the Rings, but this comes a couple of chapters after the Houses of Healing. Queen Arwen, not Eowyn, Queen Arwen, who, for those of you who are translating this into movie terms, that's Liv Tyler. Liv Tyler, who always plays the woman who's waiting for good things to happen. Anyways, Arwen, who is an elf, says to Frodo, she says, I will not go with my people to the havens across the sea, to the, to the great lands of enchantment and of full magic and healing. And she says, but in my stead, you shall go, ring bearer, Frodo. You shall go, ring bearer, when the time comes and if then you desire it. If your hurts grieve you still and the memory of your burden is heavy, then you pass into the west until all your wounds and weariness are healed. And I think this, I mean, clearly the sailing into the West, which is glimpsed so early in Lord of the Rings, it's even when Frodo is dreaming in the house of Tom Bombadil. He -hmm. has this vision of the sea that is as glass and sailing into the West, and it's where it ends. But this is the vision that kind of holds the entire story in its grasp. Mm -hmm. Like it's always Mm -hmm. sort of there just over the horizon. But it It brings us back even right into the middle of these chapters on the actual touch, the healing, the sicknesses, like what is not just the cure, to put it back into the language that you introduced, but what's the real healing that we hope for? Like how far shall we long? So I just want to bring this up in terms of like the imagination of like this full health, this full healing and its relation to salvation, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, so much to say here. Um, I think the first thing is that – it's also as a as a physician, it's one of my favorite things to think about and to ask students and trainees, like what is your what is your definition of health? And hmm. health obviously is so much more than just the absence of disease. It's like a very impoverished view of health. And I I think I've told some of you before that my favorite all-time answer to this question, it just still it really I think is the best answer I can give to this, is when I asked this to the medical students and a young woman stood up and said that she was an undergrad anthropology major and she studied in Iowa and part of her senior research project was doing qualitative interviews with farmers, asking them what their view of health was. And the farmers routinely, the themes that came up with, she said that the farmers would say, you know, I don't consider myself healthy unless my crops are healthy, the Mm. soil is healthy, the people who work for me are healthy, the livestock are healthy. And it was just really beautiful idea of health that extended even beyond ourselves, right? Even thinking about salvation being this sort of communal reality and this covenant with a people and thinking of this beautiful idea of shalom, right? That it, that's it's so much more rich, I think, than sometimes we 
are aware of and involves all creation being in reconciliation with our maker and having peace that extends beyond even our biological bodies. But my, my, you know, this, this work obviously comes down to it. And she's one of my, I think, inspirations for, for thinking about total, what we call total health is Cicely Saunders. So Dame Cicely Saunders, for those of you who care, are uh, she was sort of the founder of modern day sort of a hospice movement in palliative medicine. And so she developed this concept of something called total pain. And you can, you can substitute the word pain for total suffering and total health, total disease. And it really captures this totality of distress that constitutes human suffering. And so she says, right, that there are four dimensions in which people experience distress, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. And we oftentimes are very well-trained in medical education to identify physical suffering and psychological suffering. But I remember going through training, like social suffering, spiritual distress, like Mm. what is that? I had no idea what that was. And then I really, when I realized that not too long ago, I realized I was only really seeing half of my patients and I'm a general internist. I really became inspired to sort of increase my competency about how to recognize this and how to use my interprofessional team to get my patients the care that they need. My favorite biblical example of this type of suffering, and especially as a physician and as a woman, is the woman with the bleeding disorder. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that gospel account not only mentions her intense physical distress, but also, you know, I think conveys indirectly the other dimensions of the suffering of which Cicely Saunders realizes. So she couldn't approach Christ, obviously, because of her bleeding, which made her ritually unclean according to Levitical rules. And we can imagine that this sort of outcasting made her the societal equivalent of a a leper, which then led to profound, I'm sure, psychological and social pain. But then that power that emanates from Christ in response to her touch of faith and hope really then cuts through and touches all four dimensions of her suffering. Mm. So not only was her bleeding, of course, stopped, that of course, early we were told, I think by Mark, that like no physicians had been able to treat properly, but brings her to this real health of which we're speaking right now in a new relationship with what, you know, with the true source of her health. And we're seeing that at the end of that, Christ gives her the benediction. I believe he says, you know, go in peace, which really sums up that full nature of her healing. So that's my favorite example. Wouldn't that be something if that were the new discharge protocol that this is, you know, to <laughs> right. say to say they and go, actually have prepared yeah. people to go I in know. peace? <laughs> I know. I oh, know. That, that is we a beautiful so connection. Shorts, but I just love that picture of what what when I think of Cicely Saunders and, and thinking of scripture. That's my that's my favorite example. Well, Kristen, you know, I started, I introduced our, our talk today by sort of mentioning the comment of one of my children, Josiah, who said, uh-huh. you know, with the, the king as he touches and heals, he said, that's like Jesus who showed his kingship mm-hmm. by healing people. So why don't I, because I'm kind of obsessed with inclusio and bracketing things, I'll end with, mm-hmm. I'll bring mm-hmm. us to our, maybe our last point of the conversation by yeah. uh, invoking one of my other children, mm-hmm. Felicity, my eldest daughter who as we were, you know, just at the end of 2020, and I think maybe it was New Year's Eve or something like that, and coming into the year 2021, she had dubbed 2021 anticipatorily the year of healing. Mm. And it sort of stopped me in our tracks. And we we kind of laughed about it. And then all the other kids just took it up. They said, yeah, yeah, it's the year, year of healing. But I, I don't know, none mm. of us is an expert in this, I suppose. Mm-hmm. We're all sort of amateurs and we're all, yes. we're all grasping for it. But if you were to think of that as this you know, the current year, the forthcoming year, somewhere in the future being a year of healing, what would you hope for? What would you think about in a year like that? Yeah, I think, I mean, even to step back just a bit, I mean, when I was thinking about what do the houses of the healing represent? Like, what is what does that mean to me? What is Tolkien trying to sort of maybe point to here? I think the house of the healing 
it represents the whole world, mm. right? I mean, I think we're, we're all sick, whether or not we realize it or not. To get better, obviously, we need to first recognize our sickness, either ourselves through revelation or through the help of someone else, as we saw in the chapter with Mary getting help from Pippin or in the gospel accounts with the paralytic being brought to Jesus by his friends. And we find in Luke, you know, I, I didn't come for the well, only the sick are in need of a physician. And I think, you know, I just come back to the limits of modern medicine and how we really need to think beyond our even our own silo of the MDs and think about the, the team we have at our disposal. And I'm really thankful to have a fuller view of health because I've been able to become friends with theologians and work with our chaplains at our hospital and able to make um, connections with our even our, our clergy in the community that provide such help to our, to our patients. But I think when I think about healing, particularly in 2021, what I would be hopeful for, obviously, is, and again, how how we get here is the million dollar question, but to have a sense of of healing in a communal sense for us to have some type of reconciliation between brothers and sisters. We've all been through a lot this past year, and hopefully this makes us appreciate even more the power of those in our lives and even healing for starting in families and be able to extend out with the help, obviously, of of, of Jesus, who is who is the great physician and mm-hmm. and, and in reconciliation to him and our maker. But yeah, I also am in hope that there's some type of healing over this next year that happens because especially in, in this country, I think there's, there's been much fracturing and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful for a different, different tomorrow. Yeah. I'm also reminded here at the end, famously Pope Francis had called the church at one point, the field hospital. And it's a field mm-hmm. hospital because it is itself yeah. in and out of season, a house of healing. And so it can yeah. mobilize into, as Tolkien puts it, the wreck and the slaughter go into the fields mm-hmm. where pain is to be a field hospital. But it's also, and first of all, a stationary place of healing mm-hmm. where the divine healer comes and works through the mediation of especially the, the sacraments and through yes. the touch of ministers, really, through mm-hmm. the healing mm-hmm. words and the healing gestures and the presence of the faithful. So mm-hmm. maybe this is a call to to all mm. Christians, really, to actually mm-hmm. be heralds and instruments of a year of healing or the hope of healing in our present day. It's not mm. a bad place to end, I suppose. Lovely. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for spending this yeah, time today. Super it is fun. You are now, I think, our top guest. You've been on the mo- <laughs> This is your third time, and it, it will not be the last, if that's okay with you. It will not that be the last been, invitation. So, No, how delightful this has right. been to talk about something different than I normally talk about. <laughs> mm, my goodness. I, <laughs> I've been talking to Dr. Kristen Collier from the University of Michigan, where she is Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Director of Health, Spirituality, and Religion program. We were talking mostly about J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and his images of health, healing, suffering, and the restoration of the whole. You can find some of Dr. Collier's writings even in our Church Life Journal. Her last name is spelled C-O-L-L-I-E-R. Just search for her in the Church Life Journal. You'll find some of her writings and you won't be disappointed by that. Thanks again to Dr. Kristen Collier and thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. 
You already share our values, why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.